Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. Hello and a very, very warm welcome back to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. I am so happy to be back recording and bringing you more from our own College of Arts here at the University of Glasgow. We have got a great season two lined up for you. So many different conversations to look forward to. We're going to be traveling back in time to the ancient world. We're going to be delving into the virtual, exploring language. And I've even got something special just for all you Outlander fans out there as well. What better way to kickstart the first episode of our brand new season than with some music? This episode, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Eva Moreda Rodriguez. Eva is going to be introducing us to the world of early sound recordings and the Thothwella. Thothwella weren't something that I was familiar with before this episode, so I had a great time talking to Ava and learning more. Not to mention, Ava also very kindly shared some extracts of Tathwella performed by herself, as well as some original recordings. So lots to look forward to, and I hope you enjoy hearing from Ava as much as I did. So my name is Eva Moreda Rodriguez. I am a reader in music at the University of Glasgow and I am a musicologist, which basically is someone who studies the history of music. Uh, and in my case, my research specialism is uh, in Spanish music of the late 19th and 20th century and most recently about the early history of the phonograph in Spain. So this episode, we're going to be looking a bit at your research into, and I'm hopefully not going to butcher the pronunciation, into Thothwella. Mm -hmm. Thothwella, perfect. And also look at the recent project and network you've been working on with the early sound recordings. For our listeners who have absolutely no idea what a Thothwella is, can you maybe tell us a little bit about what they are and where they're from, how they came about? Sure. So basically, Thothwella is Spanish language musical theatre. It is, in that respect, equivalent to other forms of musical theatre that we find in other European countries. So, for example, in the UK, there's Gilbert and Sullivan, so operetta. In France, again, we have operette. In, in the German-speaking areas, we have operetta. And basically, what all of these forms of musical theatre have in common is that they have what we call arias, so sung beats, and then they have spoken dialogue. So opera has recitative. Zarzuela and these other forms of musical theatre have purely spoken dialogue. All of these um, forms of vernacular theatre develop in the 19th century uh, and then into the 20th century. And in the case of Zarzuela, it started to develop around 1850. In a way, we can say that uh, Zarzuela as a living art form lasted for about 100 years because it was in the 1950s that composers stopped, uh, so to speak, writing new zarzuelas, so the genre is still being performed today, but it's not the same as, let's say, 1900s, where you would have maybe 10 new zarzuelas being premiered every month and then being replaced by something else, and, you know, so that the genre was very much a living genre, which after the 1950s, it, it kind of pretty much stops being that kind of living genre. 
what was it that made them stop producing them in the 1950s? Well, there is uh, a lot of competition from other entertainment forms. I mean, as you can imagine, so basically from the beginning of the 20th century, we have cinema. And then we have, for example, other forms of musical entertainment, like what we would call cabaret or kind of lighter forms of entertainment. Obviously, at some point you have radio as well, but it's it's mostly the, the, the competition with a range of art forms. Ah, see, that makes sense. When the Sarsuela were recorded, what was the what was the view to recording them? Was it for personal use or was it for public consumption? Well, so in the very early years of the phonograph recording, so basically the phonograph was invented in 1878 and it arrived in Spain shortly after that. But for about 20 or so years, the phonograph wasn't really developed as a domestic machine. So it was perhaps more of a scientific curiosity. So the phonographs were still quite expensive. They were quite difficult to operate. So it wouldn't really have made sense for someone to buy a phonograph and have it at home and and kind of play recordings. So some of those very early recordings that we actually don't have them, we know they were made, but we don't have them. They would have been made in the context of phonograph demonstrations. Basically what would happen is that a phonograph operator would advertise phonograph demonstration today and then people would turn up and as part of that demonstration, maybe a Zarzuela singer would sing uh, uh, an aria and then it would be played back in front of the audience so that the audience could see for themselves that this machine actually works. And we also have towards the end of the 19th century, we have the beginnings of commercial recording, so to speak. So by that point, uh, some recordings would have been made uh, for consumption. For, for sale and for consumption. But the thing with the phonograph, which is quite interesting, in this respect, the phonograph is different from the gramophone, which is a later stage. But basically, the phonograph allowed you to make your own recordings, which with the gramophone, you cannot do it because it requires processing. But with the phonograph, anyone could do their own recordings. And so we do have recordings of zarzuela and of other genres, which were made at home by people, and again, just for their personal consumption or, or for their friends or whatever, but not for sale. But then obviously once the gramophone prevails, which is from the early years of the 20th century, then it, it is pretty much a commercial enterprise. Does that mean that you've got, not necessarily surviving, but there were amateur recordings? Yeah, I, some some amateur recordings do survive. So in Barcelona, the National Library of Catalonia, we have what I would say is one of the most important collections of amateur recordings, amateur or self-made recordings, however you want to call them. Not just in Spain, but I would say it's one of the main collections overall in the whole world. And this was a, a man called Ruperto Regordosa, so he was an industrialist, obviously a very a very rich man, a very wealthy man. His hobby was uh, to, to invite singers to his home and to record them on the phonograph. As far as I know, just for his personal consumption. And the remarkable thing is that these recordings were very well made to a really good standard for the time, obviously, you know. But for the time, I mean, he must have been a really dedicated fan, you know, to, to kind of really develop those sorts of techniques. And then we do have a, a few more cylinders in collections, which again are, are private recordings made in the home, not, not to the same standard. But these recordings show that the practice of recording oneself or recording one's friends was also very much part of the enjoyment of the phonograph at the time. So it was not just about listening to music, but it was about experimenting with the device as well. 
how popular at the time were Thathwella? Was it the main genre, as it were, or were there other things as well alongside it that were quite popular? Yeah, so when the phonograph arrived in Spain and, and it became commercial, which we are talking about 1896, so very last years of the 19th century, Zarzuela was, I would say, the most popular form of entertainment or one of the most popular forms of entertainment. So Zarzuela had undergone some developments in the previous decades, and basically the result of that was that Zarzuelas became more accessible. So we see, for example, in opera, you have a, a singer singing in Italian, and maybe the topics, the themes, some of them are going to be historical or maybe mythological. So maybe they are not something that like some people can relate to. But Zarzuela from the 1880s, it became kind of much more focused on just portraying um, what we call the Spanish Pueblo, which is just the average Spanish person or Madrid person. So it could be um, a maid or a soldier or, you know, like kind of stereotypes, archetypes that everyone would more or less know and identify with and also this means that the, the the prices went down as well and so it was very accessible to a range of social classes and basically you had the kind of more working classes in in madrid and in other cities who attended zarzuela because in a way they saw themselves portrayed on the stage so to speak but at the same time for the middle classes and middle upper classes it was also a very appealing art form because it's this very 19th century thing of, you know, this is where the authentic identity of my country is. It's not just the middle classes, it's, it's the, 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 the pueblo, the common people. So it had that kind of appeal as well. And I suppose something interesting in the late 19th century is that we still don't have cinema. Cinema had just started, but it, it was not still such a large competition because it was not so developed, you know, as, as it eventually came to be. So I would say it was one of the most or the most popular art form. I find it interesting that it's something that's focusing on sort of the average person. And like mm -hmm. you say, it's covering things like maids and soldiers and that. Who were the people that were writing and producing the Tharthuela? Yeah, so there were um, a number of composers. Some of the best known are still, you know, remembered today, studied by Spanish musicology. Ruperto Chapi, Federico Chueca, Asenjo Barbieri... So there are a number of them. I suppose an interesting thing is that most of these composers had classical training, so they would have studied at a conservatoire. And funnily enough, for most of them, their aspiration was to write opera. So at the time in the 19th century, there was this idea that opera is national music. Okay, so for example, you have Eastern European countries like Czechia or, or Russia, you know, trying to build their own national opera or the UK as well. So it was a great aspiration for a lot of countries, obviously in imitation, let's say, of German or, or Italian opera. But in Spain, I mean, there were Spanish operas composed, performed, but most of them never had a lot of success because Spanish people prefer to go and see Italian opera. One thing that I find kind of really funny is that Spanish composers wrote opera in Spanish with the text in Spanish, and then because the singers in Spain were used to singing in Italian, the operas had to be translated into Italian. <laughs> there were a lot of concerns, so composers complained a lot, well, these singers don't make an effort because they are only interested in Italian opera, so you bring them a, a Spanish opera and, and they are going to do like a halfway job, so to speak. But basically, the thing is that where the money was, was in Zarzuela. So a lot of these composers who started off writing Spanish opera, they realized 
if I'm going to make money, I have to write zarzuela. Or sometimes they, they still kept writing Spanish opera, but they made their money in zarzuela and Spanish opera was like something aspirational than that, that they did, so to speak. Obviously, nowadays we know a, a small number, a relatively small number. But at the time, there were a lot of, a lot of composers, a lot of librettists as well composing zarzuelas because it was a very fast-paced industry, especially when we get to the end of the late 19th century. I suppose a, a good comparison could be the cinema. I mean, like these days you go to the cinema every week, you're going to have new films, and then the next week some of the films will get cancelled because maybe they're not successful, and then new films will get put on, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's very fast-paced. So, so this is a good comparison for zarzuela at the end of the 19th century. It's, it's a kind of very commercial kind of art form it's it's almost like a like a factory you know like i was talking about film earlier on so obviously nowadays some films you know they they are very similar there are certain formulas certain formats that hollywood knows work you know it's always the same actors always the same situations the same types of characters and with Arthur, it was pretty much the same uh, at the, in the late 19th century so you have certain stereotypes as i said the the maid the soldier certain plots that come up again and again, because, as I said, it, it was a lot about the a sort of industrial model. One thing that stands out to me a bit there is that you said that the the opera singers struggled to, with it being in Spanish. They translated it into Italian. How did they cope with the Thothwella being in Spanish then? Did that cause any difficulties or was it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very that's a very interesting question, and it, it's a very interesting question for me because some of my research focusing on early recordings has been about how these recordings capture the ways that zarzuela was performed back in the 19th century, which might be different in some respects to how it's performed today. And obviously, when you do that, you also try to to find other documents, other primary sources. You know, maybe a treatise or maybe a review that tells you, well, this is how these critics thought that zarzuela should be performed. And the truth is that there isn't a lot of those written documents. I mean, um, there is very little in uh, in terms of describing this is how we think a performance performance of zarzuela would be like. Uh, but something that all of the something that most of the critics have in common, it's like a thread that comes up again and again and again, is that a zarzuela singer should have the ability to sing in Spanish. And some critics could say, well, this singer was terrible because she cannot sing in Spanish. And again, they they often complained that this was the fault of Italian opera because the, the teachers at the conservatory in Madrid were Italian, so they only taught their uh, students to sing in Italian and they never taught them to sing in Spanish. There were some tensions there. Uh, and on the other hand, you read a review and maybe the, the critic was praising the, the singer for being able to sing in Spanish very well. So it was something that it was highly valued by critics. You've kind of touched a bit on this already, but I was wondering if we could maybe talk a bit about the differences between how a zarzuela might be when sung or performed live versus mm -hmm. what the experience of recording it would be like. You've also recorded some of your own, mm -hmm. which I think we'll try and save towards the end because I really enjoyed listening to those. So <laughs> yeah. save the best for last. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences? This is a huge topic and I have written a few articles on it, so I will, I will try to summarize what have been my main observation or my main conclusions. A good place to start would be to say that when the phonograph is invented and then when it becomes generalized, it's not simply that the phonograph recorded what was already there, but in fact the phonograph introduced changes to how music was performed 
that then went on to, you know, become more and more popular. So Mark Katz, who is a musicologist, calls this the phonograph effect, uh, which I think is, um, is a very good name. And so we have to be aware of, you know, a range of things happening at different points in time. Uh, some of them, again, because of, because of this lack of written documents, sometimes some of these conclusions or these observations that I have made can be difficult to prove. You know, it's, it's maybe more of a hypothesis that obviously I try to support like as, as well as I can, but I will never be able to say this is, you know, this is what happened. We can be a hundred percent sure that this is how it happened. But for example, uh, the phonograph was not very good at recording certain types of sounds and certain types of voices. So for example, something that uh, is quite obvious in those early recordings made on the phonograph. And also this happened when we did these phonograph recording sessions. So the phonograph is not good at capturing lower sounds. The phonograph was not good at recording large groups of instruments. So this means that when a zarzuela aria was recorded, they didn't have a full orchestra, they had a piano and a singer. So because the piano was not easy to hear, the pianist had to, had to play very loudly. It was pam, 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 pam. And what happens? Well, when you are playing so loudly, you cannot be musical. You have to kind of make a big impact. But as I discovered when we tried this live, this also impacts on the singer because if you have a very loud piano banging on behind you, maybe you cannot even hear yourself. Maybe you are going to start singing louder or singing differently. From practical experience, I think this is a a very obvious factor to consider. And and again, you know, like the the louder you are singing and the kind of more unfamiliar the situation is, maybe the less musical you are going to be. At least the first few times, because I mean, we know that some singers became very experienced. So I can only presume that those singers also became good at saying, okay, I have to sing louder. I have to sing in a more constrained way, but I'm still going to be able to translate some of my musicality in that setup. So these are all things that, you know, we have to take into account when, when listening to recordings. Again, some of the higher sounds, um, the higher frequencies might not be captured correctly. So it sometimes happened in, in some of these recording sessions that we made. So if you had a soprano singing a high note and the cylinder just, just kind of, you know, uh, fails completely. And sometimes we also notice that sometimes because of because of the cylinder is made of beeswax, okay, it's a very fragile material. And it's very fragile both when you are recording it, when you are manipulating it, but obviously as well once you've stored it. I mean, some of these cylinders has been, have been in storage for 120 years and maybe without a lot of protection, a lot of care because there, were, there wasn't an awareness. So more deterioration has happened. So we have to be very aware of that. But we have to be very aware that because the phonograph is um, it's mechanical recording, the stylus will physically impact, physically create a groove on the, on the wax. It's a mechanical process. And sometimes what we discovered happens is that sometimes the, the cylinder might sound out of tune when the performance did not sound out of tune in some respects. Or, for example, again, a vibrato, so the vibrato of the voice or of an instrument, sometimes... It might be captured, it might be not. These are just a few of the, of the changes that, that can happen. And I suppose at a second stage, what could happen or what did happen as well was that performers realized, okay, the phonograph is going to change my voice or is going to change the sound of my instrument, so maybe I'm going to do something to compensate for that. So, so that can happen as well.
For example, I, I, I am now working on an article which talks about how dynamics were not easy to capture on the phonograph. So you don't have forte and piano. You maybe have like some kind of mezzo forte, mezzo forte, mezzo piano, but there isn't a lot of variability. So an idea that, that I've been working with is that performers try to get around that by changing the tempo in their performances to a greater extent than maybe would have been the case. So maybe that would be more slowing down, speeding up. Again, to create a musical performance, because if you are performing something and it's always the same loudness and it's always the same speed and it's always the same everything, you know, it's not going to be a very good performance. It's interesting, though, there's only so much that the phonograph can capture, mm. um, especially in terms of the higher notes and the lower sounds as well. So did that impact on the different types of singers that could form and successfully record? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. Uh, so, for example, we tend to have more more higher voices than lower voices, mm-hmm. uh, both male and women. And then we also see that reflected in the prices. So, for example, I've been doing some research on this, and a tenor, a cylinder by a tenor, could cost something like 30 or 40 pesetas, and a cylinder by a bass could maybe be 8 or 10. You know, so it's it's 5 times more expensive. And I mean, part of this was obviously because of how famous the singers were, but also my, my understanding is that this was also because of the, the quality that could be achieved. So you, you could typically achieve better quality with, with higher voices. And then something else that I've been thinking quite a lot about, and, and other authors I know have been thinking about as well, is that when the phonograph first appears, not all the singers start recording immediately. In fact, some of them were very doubtful. They didn't want to record. But then we have other singers who start recording very early on and they produce a lot of recordings. So I think there was definitely this idea that some singers, for some reason, clicked with the phonograph. And obviously part of it could be that they were quicker to adapt, so maybe they were very good at adapting to the new situation. My sense is that sometimes it it had to do simply with the timbre of the voice. There might be something in the timbre of your voice the harmonics of your voice, they they record better on the phonograph. So I, I imagine that part of the reason why some singers were more adept at recording for the phonograph was a simply, simply physical acoustic reason of how their voices were like. Did the space in which they recorded kind of impact things as well, just in terms of the acoustics or anything else? Yeah, um, this is something that we perhaps don't know a lot about, but we know that early recordists experimented a lot with. The idea of a studio didn't exist at this point. It doesn't exist really for, you know, a couple of decades. So the recordings, the very early recordings were simply made in, in a room. Uh, so in the premises of the shop, so this, this tended to be shops which also recorded. Um, so there wasn't like a specially built studio. But we do know that they were aware that uh, different kinds of rooms could produce different kinds of sounds. So, for, for example, for some of the small Spanish companies that I've been researching, I know that maybe they had two or three rooms that they used and they said, well, this room is going to be very good to record sopranos and this one for tenors. So they were aware, obviously, of these differences. And something else that they did a lot as well was to experiment with different ways of placing the different performers. So, for example, something that we see quite a lot in photographs is that they, they put the piano on a pedestal or on a platform. 
so that let's say the, the resonance box of the piano was at the same level as the singer's voice coming out of the singer's mouth, so to speak. And again, this is something that we experimented with in the phonograph recording sessions. There are all, all you know, any number of old photos where again you see maybe a few performers and they are not even able to look at each other because they had to be placed in such a way that they couldn't see each other or the way kind of squeeze together and then of course like how do you play a violin if, if you are like you know squeezed together next to each other. I've seen a couple of pictures and I had always kind of not questioned whether there was a reason behind the piano being sort of higher up yeah, I mean, I think uh, we also need to be careful, especially with slightly mm-hmm. later photos. When we get into the 1910s, 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the photos were posed. So sometimes the the, the photo, the, the the performers position themselves just for the photo, but did they record in the same formation? We don't know. So a, a range of things to take into account. Now you've shared a couple of Tathwella recordings with us. And I think now would be a really good time for us to take a listen to a couple of them. The first Tathwala that we're going to listen to, and this is where I apologise profusely for my pronunciation, is the Song of the Mirror, Canción del Espejo. And that's sung by Pepita Alcatha. Yes, that's correct. Before I hit play on this one, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? So basically, La, La Viejecita was a very popular zarzuela by Manuel Fernández Caballero. He had a lot of successes in these years. And the role of La Viejecita was written for a very famous singer, Lucrecia Arana. Uh, so Arana recorded on phonograph, but not, ma- not many of her cylinders have survived. I think only one that I remember. And then she recorded much more often for gramophone. So once the technology was a bit more developed, she recorded um, qu- quite a lot, uh, considering her circumstances, because basically gramophone started recording in Spain in around 1900, and she retired in 1908. So she only had about eight years, seven, eight years, but she recorded quite a lot. And yeah, so Arana was known in her time for having a quite low voice. So she was not a high soprano. She was she was more of a contralto, if you want. And this, this particular aria from La Viejecita was one of the most recorded at the time because it was very popular. Um, it is a, what we call a trousers role. It is a male role. It's quite interesting because so this is a male role played by a woman, by Lucrecia Arana. But then in the play, the male character dresses up as an old lady. So you got a woman dressing up as a man dressing up as a woman. I'm interested to see how that potentially translates through to it being sung then. Oh, no. 
The role, as I said, was written for a lower voice for Lucrecia Arana, but the truth is that the piece was recorded by a range of different voices. I mean, this is quite interesting as well, because around this time in opera, there was, a, let's say, a kind of much more established system of, of which voices can sing which roles. Recordings like this one show that with Zarzuela, that was not necessarily the case. Different kinds of singers could sing the same role and be successful, you know, be successful at that role. If we heard um, a recording by Arana, we could hear that those low notes would be more powerful. Even with the technology, even if the technology doesn't allow us to kind of appreciate, you know, we can still see like this was a, a voice with kind of some really serious kind of low notes. At the start of the episode, you mentioned dialogue as well as the musical performance aspect of the Thothwella. I'm just wondering, were there any instances where they tried to record dialogue as well as the singing and the music? That's an interesting thing because they almost never recorded dialogue. So at the very most, they maybe recorded a sentence or a couple of words before before the aria started, if it was, you know, convenient or if it was easy easy to make. And I suppose from our point of view today, we might think, well, this is normal. I mean, I don't think it's so normal or natural. So, so this was clearly some kind of decision that was taken in the early years of the phonograph and for some reason it stayed on. And the truth is that in the very early years of the phonograph we have recordings, uh, obviously music recordings, but we also have spoken word recordings which included jokes or short stories because obviously you could only have about two to three minutes of sound so, so it had to be like a very short story or speeches or kind of short speeches or that kind of thing. There was this idea that uh, you can also have spoken word recordings on the phonograph. The truth is, at the same time, that spoken word recordings tended to be much cheaper than, than music recordings, and then they just disappeared. So for some reason, there was an attempt at creating this genre of spoken word, and, and then it kind of just disappeared, went away, until we get audiobooks. So that's quite interesting, you know, like how ideas kind of come back, so to speak. But for some reason, yeah, they... they they never thought that a recording dialogue would be viable. And even when we get to the 1950s, so in the 1950s, obviously you have the long play. So for the first time, you can record full zarzuelas. And again, they skip they skip the dialogue, or that's what tends to happen, that they skip the dialogue and record only the, the music. But that's, I mean, that's quite interesting, I suppose, because if you look at, for example, press reviews, if you look at written documents from the late 19th century, you realize that Zarzuela was really a multimedia art form, if you want. So the music was important, but so was the the words, the acting, the dancing. For example, you had, uh, you had many singers. I mean, Arana was a very good singer, but you had other singers who, by all, by all accounts, their voices weren't good, but they were seen as good performers because probably they were good at acting, they were good at speaking, but this multimediality, so to speak, of Zarzuela's art form didn't transfer through to recordings. We will never know why, for, for sure, but clearly there is a shift there. When the phonograph arrives, it also introduces a shift into, I would say, the very nature of, of what is Zarzuela. Is it just about the songs or is it about the kind of whole package? So you mentioned that in terms of performances, you had things like dancing as well as the dialogue and the music and that. Would the performers try to 
adapt their performances to kind of bring some of that atmosphere into the recordings as much as one could, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few, I think there are a few signs that they were at least thinking about it, or at least some people, some people, whether performers or recordists, were aware that by separating, let's say, the song from its whole context, you were losing something or, or you were giving you were giving audiences a product which was not exactly, you know, like what they had encountered in the theater. So we do find some, you know, kind of footprints here and there. Uh, there is this recording of a of a choir from a zarzuela which which I really like. It's another zarzuela by Fernandez Caballero. It's called Gigantes y Cabezudos. And there's this famous choir of soldiers coming back to Spain from the Spanish American War. And there's this very lively recording by uh, Ugencia Costa, who was, which was accompanying Madrid. The choir starts with exclamations. So before singing, they let out all these exclamations. And then the chorus, the music goes very fast, is very brisk. And my sense is that because it was also quite difficult to record choirs at this point, to record a group of voices, even if it was a quite small group of voices, it was not that easy. But my sense is that by including these exclamations and by going for a kind of quite fast tempo, quite brisk, they were trying to recreate this atmosphere of the choir on stage, you know, like the, a full choir on stage singing and, and maybe with other things happening at the same time. And then something that you have in, in cylinders as well, not just in Spain, so this is in all countries that, that I know of. As we actually heard in the Alcácer cylinder, you have an announcement at the beginning. So someone says, who is the performer? What is the piece? And so on. And at the end, you have an applause. You have people clapping at the end. To me, that I mean, not just to me, because other authors have written about it, have theorized about it. I mean, the fact that people have kind of written so much about it is obviously because it is intriguing to us. Like, why include applause in a cylinder? And a lot of the explanations are about trying to create some kind of connection to live performance. So again, you can say maybe there is a, a sort of illusion of live performance, no? Because you have an you have the announcement at the beginning, you have the applause at the end, and what goes in the middle. It's like it's something, so to speak. Shall we try listening to another Sathuela? So the next one we've got is Idemy, so Poor Me. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this one before I hit play? Yeah, so this is uh, Idemy, which is um, an aria for, for soprano. It's from a Sathuela called El Rey Que Rabió by um, Ruperto Chapi, which is the the story of a king who falls in love. I mean, there are some comedic elements as well. And it was also a quite often recorded aria for, for soprano in the opening, the initial 20 years of commercial phonography. We have quite a lot of recordings, relatively speaking. This is very early in the 20th century, and this is also when foreign companies like Zonophone, Gramophone, arrive in Spain because... Uh, the very early years of phonograph recordings. So we have small Spanish companies making recordings almost in a very DIY way. But then from the early 20th century, we have the so-called multinationals or what would become the multinationals. And this is quite interesting as well, I suppose, because it also means that the, the whole recording industry is going to be more and more centralized, which is, in fact, what, we, what we've seen like the whole 20th century. Comanda por la señora Soledad Goitueta, Sonograma Edison. Sonograma Edison. 
Something that maybe you've noticed is that this is more of a brass band rather than an orchestra because with the gramophone it was more possible to, to record larger groups of instruments but again strings were quite difficult to, to, to record. Strings were a particular difficult kind of instrument and so in a lot of these early 20th century recordings we have brass band accompaniments it was a sort of small brass band something that maybe stands out for, from a modern point of view is two things so first of all the tempo is not steady you have this very obvious acceleration and decelerations and then you have portamento so you have these slides from high to low notes Yo que siempre rey. so you have that kind of slide and these are two things that, from our modern point of view, is like, no, don't do it. You know, like, you should never do that. You know, like, if you study in a sort of classical setup, these things won't be, you know, won't be easily allowed. But it shows, you know, again, it shows how the performing styles have changed. And, and one, I mean, obviously, I've now spent several years, you know, listening to these recordings. But when I first encountered them, I was, I was the same. I was like, what is this? You know, this is very kids. This is very saccharine kind of thing. The, the more you listen to them, the more you understand how they use it, why they use it, you know, why do they have this slide at this point? Like, what does it mean? What's the underlying kind of vision? I think I've got a new appreciation for the strength of her, of particular of this singer's voice, just knowing that she's, almost competing with the band behind her mm -hmm. or next to her around her however they've had to position themselves for the recording and obviously we've got a digital recording of a cylinder recording as well which potentially adds some additional layers to it yeah i mean i think um by this point probably the idea of recording was much more normalized among uh, among singers basically we have the the first commercial recordings in the 1890s very few famous singers really went for it so we have nelly melba but most singers weren't that interested and i mean there's a good reason for that because someone like lucrecia arana for example would have been earning a lot of money on the stage. So why would you go to a recording studio where maybe the pay wasn't so good and then maybe 
you didn't have a lot of control on what was being produced. So it was not an attractive proposition. And it became more attractive once Enrico Caruso made his famous recordings, which was 1902 to 1904. So Caruso was the first or one of the first famous singers to, to really make the recording work to his advantage and really craft something that he felt represented his artistry. But still, I mean, I think that the recording we've just played is either it's around the same dates, maybe it's a bit late, a bit later. But I think these, you know, these early singers, they did a really great job, you know, and, and you can imagine that they had to be ready to experiment. And sometimes they didn't have a lot of control on what they did, but they still did it. It's great. <laughs> with the recording, would it be a case of they get one shot with a cylinder and that's it? They wouldn't be able to re-record the way we would today? Yeah, uh, so there was an element of that because with um, with the phonograph, duplicating cylinders is not easy. So eventually a machine was invented, the pantograph, but even then the copies were not that good. So with the gramophone, once you get to the gramophone disc, yeah, you can make like infinite number of copies. But with the phonograph, I think with the pantograph, you could only get about 20 or something like that. So, so you know, so it's not made for mass production of, of recordings. I mean, in a way, it was very much a, a kind of artisanal industry. It was very much about the product, like the, the product and, and, you know, and we care about what we do and it's all very kind of well-crafted. So that, that was the idea. Yeah, and it meant that it was not really possible to create more than one copy of a cylinder. What they did was to just maybe in the same session record the same piece several times and as long as it was okay, it would be released as it was, you know. So, like, they didn't spend, okay, let's let's record this 20 times until we get to the perfect version. Well, as long as you didn't make a major mistake, this is going to go on sale, you know. <laughs> and I think this is also quite different to to later ideas about recording because once, you, once we get into the 1950s, 1960s, and there's all these Glenguls, Bach, and, and Barenboins, Beethoven, it's like, well, you know, this is like the artist's vision of how these pieces should sound like. And it's really good, but this was not the philosophy in the early 20th century. I mean, like, I, I don't think any of the performers, we can say this was how this performer intended this piece to be performed, and that's like the perfect performance forever. No. <laughs> so you've been leading the Redefining Early Recordings network. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how it came about and what you've been doing with it? So basically, this is a research network founded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. So it's been going on since March 2021, and it's ending this month. So we had two months, two sorry, two years of funding, and basically it came about because. I, over the years, in kind of various conferences and other events, I had been meeting other scholars doing work on early recordings and, and mostly connected to matters of performance. What hap- what's happened in, in musicology, I suppose, with early recordings is, is that there was a lot of interest in around 2006 to 2010. So there was a big project and there was a lot of interest. And then the next 10 years, the project came to an end. The thing is, there were still lots of people uh, doing work on early recordings, but we weren't really that well connected to each other. One of the main reasons why the network, network came about is because a, a colleague of mine, Inia Stanovic, so, so now she's City University, not Glasgow, uh, so her and I organized a conference in 2019, it was, because it was before COVID, just before COVID, and we were really impressed at the number of proposals that we got, and we realized 
well, probably something is needed to bring all these people in touch with each other. In the, let's say, 10, 15 years after this other big project ended, the main thing was like how diverse the methodologies are that people are using and the different approaches. So, for example, typically a lot of this research would focus on canonic repertoires or Brahms or Chopin or, I mean, my colleague Ineas, a specialist in Chopin, but for example, I do zarzuela, which has some elements which are similar to opera, but it also has other elements which are maybe closer to popular music. And again, different approaches, different methodologies. So some people do more practice-led research, which incorporates their own performance. I do more kind of a cultural research. So I look at the contexts. I look at a range of sources. Other people do more computational approaches. So they, it's very empirical. They use um, software. They use, you know, variations of, you know, ma mathematical science and so on. So the idea was to to come together and, and, and see, well, how can we collaborate with each other? So what are some of the big questions that we can get together and, and answer? Are there any particular themes or questions that are relevant to a lot of you rather than just small groups of research? Is there anything that kind of is more universal? Yeah, I think something, one of the big takeaways from the network is that we organized three phonograph recording sessions where several of us recorded music for the phonograph. We heard it back as, as a group. And this is an approach that uh, Inia, my colleague, used in, in her postdoc project. So she's a pianist, so she recorded a, a lot of, well, not just Chopin, but a range of things. And so I suppose there was an awareness that, yeah, this is a method that can work well for the, the study of purely for the study of performance, you know, like you, you get to see, okay, if I play this passage in this way, how is it going to come out? So maybe I can, you know, I can draw conclusions about the performance, the piano performance technique of Chopin. Okay, great. But we also realized that when we engaged in doing these recordings, the key thing was that you have a group of people in the room, all of which, or most of which are specialists in recordings, and so they would be offering comments, asking questions. And we realized that this more interactive format was really good to get conversations going, which were not just about the performance, but about broader questions about recording recordings. So we found that this practical engagement, this hands-on engagement was really useful and really productive. So for example, we ended up having conversations about what pieces are we performing? So for example, I've talked about the canon and obviously a lot of people got into early recordings because they said, well, I want to know how people perform Brahms a hundred years ago. I really like Brahms. I really like Chopin. Good. But then you realize, well, in recordings, a lot of the pieces are not by Brahms or Chopin. They are, let's say, minor pieces by composers which are forgotten. So these are pieces that are perhaps a bit kitsch, a bit saccharine. Maybe from our point of view, we really don't, you know, we don't appreciate them. We don't think they should be part of the canon or anything like that. But, you know, but then in a context like that, you realize, oh, so you've played Brahms and then you've played this piece by this other unknown composer and you play them in the same way. What does this tell us? You know, maybe Brahms and these other composers were part of the same ecosystem and we can look at them side by side. So we found that it also opened up questions uh, beyond purely matters of performance practice uh, and also for example in terms of what would have happened in the studio so something that I was quite quite surprised by is how quickly musicians adapted to the phonograph 
some performers were probably quite good at adapting to the phonograph, but was that a minority or was that maybe the norm? Nowadays, if you're a musician, you have certain experiences already that someone from the 19th century didn't have. But I found it quite interesting to kind of see life, how quickly people were able to learn. So that, that was really illuminating for me. You've recorded a couple of cylinders yourself, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. the Southwell that we've played for. Should we start with Ida Me just because mm-hmm. we've listened yeah. to that one? Okay. Have you recorded yourself before on a cylinder or otherwise? Not really, because, I mean, I've been in, re- in professional recordings, but as a member of a choir, uh, not as a soloist. And, I mean, obviously I am probably in kind of various phone, vi- phone videos, YouTube videos, but uh, not in professional. <laughs> what did the process of recording feel like to you? And what does it feel like listening back to it? When I made the recording, I think I, I was in a quite unique position in that this was towards the end of of the third workshop that we organized. So I had been through seeing like a lot other people, you know, recording. So for example, I knew already like some of the tricks, like some of the kind of general tricks and so on. By that point, I had spent several years looking at uh, sources, listening to listening to um, phonograph cylinders, reading a lot. We did have performers who were very surprised by what they heard back because maybe they weren't as familiar with, with the phonograph um, recording process. But I perhaps was more, you know, to a greater extent than others. So from that point of view, I mean, th- there wasn't anything that I felt, well, this completely changes the, the way I, I've been looking at these recordings. Like I was completely wrong, you know, and I have to start again. Nothing like that. You know, it was more like, okay, this maybe confirms something that I thought, or maybe it gives me something new to think about, but it's not completely, you know, contradictory with with what I know. I had seen all of the other performers, it was the same thing with the piano accompaniment, you know, really loud piano accompaniment. Also, you cannot see the pianist. So I was kind of prepared for that in a way, but I suppose um, it affects everyone differently because you cannot communicate with, with your with your pianist. And so, for example, in that recording, when I listened to it, I would have liked to be much freer with the tempo. I would have liked to be much more fluid. And I realized that sometimes it's kind of very 
you know, it's very military in a way. So I would have liked for it to be a bit more, have more freedom in, in rhythmic terms. I think a, a constant in most of the recordings that we made was, so how do you get the balance between the technology? Well, technology, on the one hand, your own technique, but also your own musicality. So creating something that is not just playing the notes, but which has some musicality in it. When I listen to that, I say, well, there is some musicality there. It's maybe not as perfect as I had wanted it, but I was able to use some of the ideas that I had in mind. So I have success, I suppose, in a way. So now we'll listen to the other Sarsuela that you recorded and we heard earlier in this episode. So Canción del Espejo, Song of the Mirror. Here we go. Did you prefer performing and recording one one Sarsuela over the other? I think I recorded. So the one we just heard was the first one I recorded. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we got to the second one, mm-hmm. I was feeling a bit more confident. Obviously, you know, it was all in all, it was a very short experience, but I could already see, you know, myself gaining a bit more confidence. Mm-hmm. Has this experience and being part of the network made you want to try recording more? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, so my, as I mentioned, my, my colleague Inya Stanovich, so, so she's done a three-year project, a postdoc on her instrument, which is the piano. And, and then she also invited other pianists and, and she did a few recordings with a violinist. But obviously, you know, the main focus is the piano. But I think we need to do the same for voices uh, and especially the... 
the human voice is has a lot of variability as an instrument. Uh, I mean, as we as we all know, so it would be really interesting to to track that, you know, to to get different singers with different kinds of voices, different approaches to training, and just do the same thing, you know, for four or five years, you know, of, of recording. That would be ideal. So you held the final symposium back in January. Have you got any plans for anything further? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we are now wrapping up, you know, just kind of uh, updating the website with the various videos and materials from all of these events. And I think there is a, a strong sense from members of the network that we should keep this going in some capacity. So we are thinking that the first step could be to start a, an association or a, a network, but without the funding, basically gathering people who are interested in, in research on early recordings, basically just as a way of, of keeping in touch and to have like some sort of platform to then be able to go for grant applications or organize a conference, but basically just to have the kind of pool of people Yes, yeah, so I think that that would be the that would be the first the first step. I suppose we are very kind of keen as well to involve different groups of people because obviously there are a number of academic researchers who do this kind of research, but there is a lot of knowledge as well among the record collectors. So there are people who just love old records, like old gramophone discs, wax cylinders, and they just collect. Uh, and they are not academic experts, but they have really a lot of expertise. And this is perhaps a conversation that hasn't happened a lot, you know, in the past between collectors and academics. And obviously then we have um, technicians, uh, sound engineers who maybe have done digitizations of these uh, early recordings. We have curators, archivists who look after obviously storing recordings and looking after recordings. And so, yeah, we, we think that the way to go is to keep fostering collaboration between these groups. So if our listeners want to learn a bit more about the network and maybe hear some of the recordings that you've all made, where can they find you all? Yeah, so we are on early-recordings.com. That's the best place to go because from there you can also... A link to our YouTube account where we have all of these videos and we also have a, a number of lectures and papers from various conferences, various events over the years. It's a good starting point for anyone interested in early recordings. How can our listeners keep up to date with your research and what you're doing? Well, I do sometimes tweet quite a lot on my academic research, so it's at Eva, a lower dash, Moreda, M-O-R-E-D-A on Twitter. I typically tend to post announcements of publications and funnily enough, the last couple of days, by complete chance, <laughs> on, on Tuesday, I, I got an edited book coming out, which is so early sound recordings, research and practice, which predates the network, uh, but it it has some of the same preoccupations. And yesterday I, uh, I got an article published on the journal 20th Century Music and it's on composer Julian Orbon, so it has nothing to do with recordings. But I will be posting on my Twitter account, I will be posting about, um, you know, any updates that I got. And I sometimes I do post rants as well about academic research and musicology and so on. So you have to put up with that as well if you follow me. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Eva. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and I've really enjoyed finding out so much about the Thothwella. If you want to find out more about Thothwella and early sound recordings, as well as more about Ava's research, you'll be able to find links to everything that we have chatted about today in this episode's show notes. 
including some fantastic videos of Ava performing and recording Salsuela onto the phonograph. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.